Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Hey guys, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I'm going to take a moment to address something because we pride ourselves here on being forward with our audience and pulling no punches. You probably noticed that there's been a reduction in podcasts lately. There haven't been that many coming out, and I just want to tell you why. Back in September, I bit my tongue in my sleep multiple times. It was awful, and it just made talking really hard, and (laughs) it just kind of sucked. Anything longer than like a sentence or two was just pain, and it just awful. And I did this night after night after night. Um, Problem has been solved. It took a few weeks for my tongue to heal up. I am now healed and talking, as you can hear. But the idea of podcasting was not really appealing because one thing you have to do while you're podcasting is really try to engage your guest. And it's hard to engage your guest when you can't speak very well. So I hope you guys forgive me for that. I hope you guys keep listening uh, because I've got a really cool show right now for you. We've got Mr. Daniel Bergstrand, who is one of my favorite all-time producer mixers. Now, some of you who tune into Nail the Mix might be saying, why is this coming out after your Nail the Mix with Daniel? And well, just because I bit my fucking tongue last month and couldn't podcast. So uh, we did it now. If you don't know Daniel, it's just that you don't know that you don't know him. Because he's worked with bands like In Flames, Meshuggah, Soul Work, Demon War Gear, Behemoth, tons of others. If you own Superior Drummer or Easy Drummer, like if you know the Metal Foundry, Metalheads, or Drum Kit from Hell, he's the dude who produced those drum sample packs. And... Let me just go down this list of albums he's worked on, and I'm going to read them out because I don't want to go by memory. But Meshuggah, Destroy, Race, Improve, Devon Townsend, Ocean, Strapping Young Lad, City, uh, Devon Townsend, Ocean Machine, Meshuggah, Chaos, Fear, Darkane, Rusted Angel, Bunch More Darkanes, In Flames, Reroute to Remain, Behemoth, Demigod, In Flames, Soundtrack to Your Escape, Soil Work, Stabbing the Drama, Dark Funeral, <laughs> Terra Totus Sanctus, in Flames, Come Clarity, Demo Borgir, Abracadabra, just like on and on and on. So many great bands that have such an impact on metal. Like, this guy is the shit. And he really does his own thing. He's big on natural sounds. He mixes on a board, uses very, very few plugins, is really like for the purists. He's a. Uh, He's great for the purists, but also what's really cool about him is that he does his own thing, 
And he keeps things pure and raw sounding, but they're modern. And that's that. That's what he does differently. Like a lot of times when guys are like, "Oh, I'm gonna keep it raw," raw is just another word for shitty. In Daniel's productions, they sound fantastic and modern, and just like you can feel the band in the room at the same time. So. I'm stoked to have him on. He's one of my heroes. And uh, before I bring him on, let me just tell you real quick about the URM Summit. This is an event that we are throwing on URM at Orlando, Florida in December of 2017, the 11th through the 14th. And it's basically four days of seminars, panels, hands-on boot camps, networking, and hangs with us and our guests. And... Uh, let me read you who our guests are. We've got Andrew Wade, Billy Decker, Brian Hood, Finn McKenty, Kane Churko, Fluff, and then, of course, myself and Joel Wanasek and Joey Sturges. And we are going to be not just educating you guys on recording and mixing, but business. And, of course, the part that I haven't even mentioned is this is going to be at the Doubletree SeaWorld Resort. And there's going to be... Tons of people coming in from all over the world. I think we've got already nine countries represented. I mean, where else do you get a chance to hang out with so many audio people who just want to learn and get better and share knowledge in one place? You you really don't get to do this very often. Plus, uh, the guests, all of us are staying at the same hotel. Everyone's going to be hanging out at the same time. It's just going to be a great time. And if you want to Check that out and come hang out with us in December. Just go to urmsummit.com and get yourself a ticket and hope to see you in December. So without further ado, I present you the podcast with myself and Daniel Bergstrand. So Daniel Bergstrand, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Normally, we do these uh, before nail the mix but i think september was crazy for both of us and uh so now we're doing it afterwards but what's kind of cool about this is that now that people have seen you work they actually have uh, had some questions about it but uh we'll get to that later first things first how are you doing i'm doing fine sir and you i'm doing well so um i want i wanted to jump right into um right into your history and I wanted to talk about how young you were when you started doing this stuff and um how quickly things happened so you start you told me you started recording at 14 right uh that was maybe a bit too 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 early <laughs> too early yeah but I think I was like around 16 15 or 16 so uh, yeah I mean it happened really that's pretty uh, young yeah yeah that's super young and I don't know, I just had a huge amount of luck, you know. Uh, basically, I mean, it was like for so many other, I mean, I played guitar in a band and, you know, bored and dropped school after ninth grade. And, you know, I wasn't really up for anything else than writing music and achieving, you know, the best possible recording back home. I guess, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, it's just luck. I mean, uh, got to know a guy or two guys that was building a studio and, you know, he offered us a deal, you know, to record a demo in their studio. So I, I believe I was 15 at the time. I think there's always like a little bit of luck involved with, uh, you know, meeting that right person who 
Mm. Like, you know, it gives you that right first opportunity and which leads to meeting that right first band or the, you know, meeting the band that makes it happen or the contact in the industry that makes it happen. I think all that stuff is luck, but I mean, you obviously had to work your ass off too. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay, so you dropped out of school in ninth grade. Were you, did you do it because of music or just because you hated school or a combination of both? <laughs> I guess a combination of both. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, like I said, I mean, the only thing I cared about was music. Uh, I mean, lousy grades and, you know, you know, that was about it. You know, like, and like I said, I mean, we got to that studio, we got that uh, offer and, Uh, you know, I'll never forget that feeling, you know, that uh, I felt directly that this is what I'm going to do for a living. So it was that clear to me, you know. Man, that's that's actually really lucky that you figured it out so young because a lot of people never, you know, never figure it out. But uh, could you describe that clarity? Like, I'm just curious about that because... I've always had a sense of clarity about what I've wanted to do, and it's guided me. It sounds like you had the same thing. Oh, yeah. How can I describe that clarity? Uh, I mean, every... Um, you like electronical things, right? And then you, yes. you see all these lights and all these, like... I don't know, it's just a feeling. Like, yeah, I want to record albums. I want to be in a studio. That, that's all I care about. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, I felt like, okay, so what am I actually going to study now after ninth grade? I mean, I don't know the English uh, terms for all this, like media, whatever. But, you know, it was nothing that really fitted into what I wanted to learn. And and also, I mean, <laughs> and also because of the grades, it was not like a lot of options either. <laughs> so, um, uh, I don't know. But, you know, like I said, I mean, at that studio, the, everything happened so quickly because, um, uh, you know, I don't know in what order this happened, but, you know, for some strange reason, that guy let me stay there even at night to play around, you know, with their equipment and, you know, to practice by myself. Maybe I asked too many questions during daytime, so they wanted to, you know, get rid of so me. <laughs> but I don't know, but... You know, that that's actually how it started. Just they, they noticed that I was like super interested in, in what they had there and how things worked and so on. And, you know, one thing led to another. And I asked if I could intern here. And uh, he said, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how uh, old were you when that happened? Yeah, I, I believe I was 15. Um, so, yeah. Uh, okay, so you moved fast. I moved fast, yes. Yeah. You, you know, the, I had a kind of a similar story, actually. Um, when I was 14, my first band went to record. Mm -hmm. uh, and we went to kind of like the place in town that did all the best local bands. You know, the popular local band studio at that time in, I think it was 1994, actually, like 94, 95, 93, those, that time period. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy who ran it, I guess, noticed that I was curious about this stuff and actually kind of did the same thing. Like he lent me like an SM57 and like uh, 
a 3630 compressor and would let me run the tape machine um, and just kind of kind of help me. Um, hmm. And I kind of feel like it's almost, and he was what, like 35, 36. So it's like getting like a real adult approval on this stuff. It really, really helped tremendously. Oh yeah, huge salute to those guys. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, kicking you into the uh, yeah this um, yeah this lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, just to help you out. So um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I'm I'm just so grateful to to these two persons that got me into this. I mean, still even today when I when I meet him, I go like, oh, if it wasn't for you, man, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, you know that's that's entirely possible too, man. If you yeah, hadn't met them, who the hell knows? I mean. Um, I feel like talent and skill will only take you so far, but you definitely need you need that tiny amount of luck, well, or big amount to meet that right person. It's not like it's not the same kind of luck involved with like you know winning the lottery or something like that, but it's kind of similar. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of well. similar. It's like winning. It's like of all people you could have met, right? Mm. You happen to meet like the right person to kick you into uh, what ended up being your entire career. So let's, okay, so let's talk about the internship. So you're 15, you're interning at a studio where they already like you um, because you were like the smart kid. How, uh, what kind of stuff were you doing when you were interning? Mm, yeah, it was, uh, they they quite quick, when I, they quite quickly started to, uh, they turned into a record label as well, oh, okay. <clears throat> and it was some uh, cooperation with uh, Roadrunner Records actually. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so I mean, they were. It was a busy studio. Um, it was. We were doing, I think, like three compilations al- compilation albums. Uh, so there was a lot of bands every day. You know, like sometimes up to four, four to five bands per week. Oh wow! You guys would record every track on the compilation. Yeah, that's correct because it was the label's compilation album. Um, yeah. So but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of bands, and you know, I got more and more responsibility, and yeah, it just led to me being the one doing everything, and and the other two guys were more fo- more focusing on the label part. So. Uh, yeah, it just like I said, it happened so quickly. Everything. I mean, maybe they noticed uh, quite, quite fast that okay, let let him do this because I'm maybe I, <laughs> I was obviously kind of okay, you know. Uh, yeah. So I don't. Know. I mean, I didn't do anything else. I mean, I slept in the studio. I was there at twenty four, twenty four seven, never at home. Um, uh, if there was any. Um, any pause between the sessions, I was, you know, recording myself and, and you know, yeah, learning so a new obsessed. piece of equipment. Yeah, man, I was totally obsessed. <laughs> so uh, I, I've thought about that obsession that I think everyone needs to go through. It's, it's interesting. <clears throat> I feel like lots of the guys I know who are really good at recording or music, once they hit their 30s, they start taking like one day off a week or they say I get my best work done in the morning Mm -hmm. or you know like in the first six hours and then I try to have a normal life but like and they say that you shouldn't do the 12 hour days or the 16 hour days anymore 
But all those people, every single one of them, whoever got good, had a time period in their early 20s or in their teenage years where it lasted for like three to five years where they did like 12 hours a day and did nothing else with their life. Uh, you're so right about that. I, I think it's last even longer, like even up to your whole 30s, you're still, I'm still there. I'm still working more or less the same as before. And then you're getting into like, okay, I'm gonna, okay, things are going to change now. I mean, we need to work better hours, but you know, it, it always tends tends to be like <laughs> the uh, the opposite. Uh, I, I can't, I can't like, I get, I lose track of time. You know, if I'm into something and then all of a sudden it's three o'clock in, in, at night, and like, oh damn, okay. Uh, and I haven't eaten either, okay. Uh, and I have a bit, <laughs> a bit of a curfew. If it's, if it's, if it's starting to be like next day, like light. If it's not dark anymore, <laughs> then I might as well continue working till I get super tired because it's there's no need to, you know, go back home and sleep. I'll just, you know, destroy the next day. So I might as well. You know, work as Just much as I can through. during that day. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know. I mean, that's a, a sign that I still think it's fun, you know, and it's, so I just got to keep going. <laughs> well, I think it's it's interesting um, about that. So about you still finding it fun, you also are very, very particular about how you record. Like, it's mainly analog. Like, you, def, you know, you definitely do your own thing. Um, and you stick to your own thing. Do you think that that's part of why you still feel so much enjoyment for it? Maybe, maybe so. Um, there's something about categorizing things or like having things in order that I like, uh, you know, when, when I feel (laughs) that's a bit of a mission too. I mean, I want everything to look good. Like all the wave files sorted out, good names, uh, or good titles and just organized. I, I love that, and that's a <laughs> that's a part of uh, uh, of the challenge, and that keeps keeps me up, you know. And then you know nothing beats the feeling of when you achieved a I don't know good snare drum sound or whatever, a good guitar sound, like yeah, and it gives you extra power, and then you know or strength, and I love that. Uh, and like you said, I don't, know, I don't know if this really answered your question, but but sticking to analog things, yeah, of course, uh, I love well, that. Well, I just really. I just mean that you st- you stuck to what you felt was the right way for you to make the music. Uh, like for instance, I think that you know my partner Joey, he's not an analog guy at all. Like he does, he uses like zero outboard. And it's mm. 100% in the box, and he doesn't like analog gear. And I think that part of what kept him going was just doing his own thing, you know? Um, yeah, maybe I right. think, well, uh, you know, well, as for the art side of your, there, you know, I think that this is both science and art. Um, and I think that for the art side, a lot of guys don't, don't focus on what they actually feel artistically comfortable with enough. Um, I just think there's something to be said for the fact that you still love it as much as you did and you do your own thing. Mm. Um, and by the way, as far as keep order, your studio mm. is gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, it's so it's like I mean, obviously it's clean and but like it's so like orderly and like just yeah, I mean, great. I, I don't it's know just I, a great place. It's a great studio. Ah, uh, thanks, man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I lose. I, sometimes I need a few reminders from people. Like, well, like, man, your console—it's uh, so massive and beautiful. It's so. Oh yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> and then and then I get that first feeling when when we got it into the studio. We're like, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't. What, what do you call it in English? You get like. You get used to seeing these things, so you forget how cool it is, you know. Oh, you you kind of uh, become like complacent. Home. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah. But thanks, thanks. I, I really enjoy working here too. That was that was actually the thing. But like in the beginning, it was a lot of traveling, and uh, I felt like I want to have my own good studio to always, you know, lean back on if anything, and you know. Especially to to mix, you know, and I think, yeah, I think we succeeded. <laughs> it was supposed to be like this last studio that we were in, like uh, it was, we were supposed to be here like one or two years, and then you know build this like big house or something. But you know now ten years has passed, so <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's it kind of covers all the bases. Um, so let's go back to when you were younger. Um, so was was Meshuga your first breakthrough? Do you consider that your first breakthrough? Uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I worked. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten Meshuga if it wasn't for some of the local bands that I did. Uh, so... But the first real ba- breakthrough, yeah, Meshuga. Um, I worked uh, on two albums with a local band called Lost Souls, and mm-hmm. that that led me into to meeting Frederick and you know into Meshuga. And then after that, things happened so fast. Okay, and so you were nineteen, so you had already been at this at the in working at that studio and like doing it for a few years yeah yeah so you had done done the compilations and yeah and then also a, a, a lot of albums uh, i forgot you know what bands but it was a lot of albums a lot of bands uh, but i would say that maybe lost souls and and a band called crawley led me you know into Meshuga. Uh, they, this I heard just like a few weeks ago that we did some sort of also compilation thing like a EP with these two bands, and that was the one that Freddie got hooked up on. Uh, so he contacted the label that I worked at, you know, or label studio, and asked about like, hey, I also wanna, you know, I wanna book a session, and and then the. <laughs> and then the owner said, "Like, yeah, then you should talk to Daniel, and he's four, four and a half year old." Uh, so, yeah, that's how it started. So uh, they were they were already around for a little while, but um, were they were they like a prominent band in your area, or mm, yeah. not quite yet? Yeah, no, not quite yet. Uh, a few of us knew about Contradiction Collapse. Um, I, I've heard that one, and um, and I, I liked it, of course. But after none, that's when it really started to happen, uh, at least around here. 
uh, and it, it was just they just released none and we were listening to none a lot like oh wow it's so cool this band from <clears throat> north of sweden and uh, and then you know and then just by coincidence he called me right after that so <laughs> The same, same actually, same thing happened with with Devin Townsend too. Uh, the manager that I had at that time, he he asked me like, okay, so if you got to choose, which one would you like to work with? Uh, name name just one band that you would like to work with, or one person. I said like, yeah, Devin Townsend, that would be so sweet. He just released Heavy as a what is it called? Heavy as a really heavy thing. And, yes. Uh, and uh, the day after, Devin called me. So uh, just a, I don't know. It's just luck. <laughs> did the manager have anything to do with that? I I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, just the star. The stars uh, aligned. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't know. I think a lot of people consider Destroyer Race Improved to be like their Meshuggah's breakthrough record, but also like the record that kind of started a, an entire genre of music and kind of changed metal forever did you have any idea when you were working on it that you were working on revolutionary stuff i had no no idea about that i mean uh, uh i i knew that it was going to be extremely good and i was a bit you know shake nervous in the beginning like okay I, at least I'm, i have to make it sound as good as none um But that was just in the very beginning, and then I mean, they're so cool guys, and you know, we're just hanging around with friends in the studio and and having fun. I don't think any one of us uh, uh, knew that or had a feeling that that we were doing something, you know, you know, starting a new genre or anything, <laughs> you know, or that it was going to be their breakthrough album. I don't think so. Um, You were just enjoying we were, yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think it was just a good combination between us all, and uh, I was obviously doing something that Frederick liked, and you know, it was just a good match. So, so I you showed me some of those videos of you guys back then. Like it seemed like they shared the same kind of love for creating that you did like did you guys find yourselves uh kind of like i don't want to say soulmates because that mean, but like musically like that uh were you guys like all aboard with like working like the crazy hours and just seeing how awesome it could be <laughs> absolutely we're uh me and frederick is exactly the same yeah we work till we uh, you know when you feel that your heart is outside your body then it's time to quit <laughs> but <clears throat> but other than that we work crazy hours me and Frederick I mean, it, it actually happens nowadays too when we you know work on something even for Coloss and you know, stuff like that it could be like two days in a row and like oh yeah maybe we should sleep and but you know we're really creative and we're super picky and thorough and and I, you know I, I I mean, I did. I don't remember like all these details from Destroyers Improve. Uh, a few things got back to me after seeing the video and after you know talking a bit to Frederick about it, and and he said again that man, we we spent so so many hours on configuring that and that and that, and we ne we didn't give up. You know, we really really worked. This was the very best we could do, and uh, so um, yeah, we're too. 
too oh, we're all picky but you know good match again <laughs> so his pickiness matched your pickiness and yeah 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 <laughs> it still it still does even today i mean we're, we're we have the same same opinion about things and um uh, maybe maybe he's a little bit more picky in guitar sound than me but uh, uh, drums and 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 like mixes and all i think we're the same how long did you guys spend on destroy race and prove mm, uh, I, i believe it's it was three weeks three or four weeks so, so three intense weeks yeah so maybe six weeks then yeah yeah <laughs> six weeks for a normal person um, yeah. if if you count the amount of time spent <laughs> exactly yeah i mean we we did we worked like i said 24/7 and then when i was tired i went back home slept and then fredrick was probably up tracking himself or you know tracking something i got back in the morning and then took took over from there so and we actually went directly to master the album too we mixed i think like two days in a row and then took the car drove to stockholm and then master it <laughs> So uh, uh, that's how it worked at that time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> go directly and master is crazy. Yeah. So okay. So did that have to come out before uh, you started to get these other bands like Soil Work and Devin Townsend? Like you said that things moved very very fast after that. Mm. Did the did the record have to come out or? Did the was the momentum already started for you? Uh, it, it had started actually. I mean, we did the album, uh, and then we went directly on tour too. Uh, Burn my eyes tour with Machine Head for about nine weeks. Um, so when you say the, the we, actual, when yeah, you say we, what do you mean we? Uh, I was like, doing. Were the, you doing sound for them? Yeah, I was doing the front of house. Uh, okay. And uh, the the record got released on tour, like halfway into the tour or something. And and at that time, I already had a couple of things going, so I, I knew exactly what I was going to do when I get back home from tour. And I couldn't really make up my mind at that time because I thought, ah, oh, touring—that's awesome. Okay, I'm gonna okay, I'm gonna tour. I'm gonna record album, but albums. But I realized that you know, <laughs> being on the road is maybe not anything for me um uh it's fun but i you know that's stress and that you can't this is what you got to play with i mean sound wise and i hate that feeling you know i wanna <laughs> have to have to make it sound amazing within 45 minutes yeah, if that and exactly. that's it yeah and you know how it is when you're on like the support band you get i mean today you got a yeah. line check guys okay line check and i'm the one who's who needs to go up on stage and tap the microphones to see that i got signals and then go back again and then hope for the best you know and i don't like that stress that and then i mean once again we were young but i mean at that even at that time i felt like okay being on tour that that would turn me into an alcoholic But okay, maybe it wouldn't be the same today. But, but you know, uh, that was too stressful. And then I couldn't do both because I had so many albums lined up and things lined up. So I mean, I had to you know pick something. I think you made the wise choice. Yeah, I think I went on one more tour, one or two more tours with Mishuga. Uh, but that was about it. 
and then you know I had some spares you know spare spare time things you know local local bars and just to get some extra cash and but I don't do that anyth- anymore it's not not anything for me <laughs> do, do you think though that the the idea of tracking uh, I mean of like working in a live environment and having to set things up um, to work right then and there you know like you know it is what it is like you can't then edit it into perfection or anything it's the real thing do you think that that's affected your production style at all uh, are you referring to live or referring to like tracking an album like, well do you think that any 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 of the any of your live experience affected your album production um workflow or uh, philosophy nah no nah, i mean i didn't it was not many options if that's what you're referring to i mean i couldn't really sit and edit and uh you know those tapes and a dots and and stuff like that uh so you're so you're stuck anyways with what with you what you got yeah uh, yeah yeah but to this day though um do you think that that's affected your production style yeah. even when pro tools came into the picture and all that probably yes i mean uh i like to keep the if i have a you know a cool piece of machinery i want to track it down and I want to have the same sound next time I open up that uh, that session and I, I like tracking things so you should, every channel should sound good she's going to be able to solo everything and it should sound good I don't like cover things in like you know <laughs> in the whole uh, whole mix ah oh, you won't be heard anyway that's cool I, I, I really don't work like that um Want to solo the hi hat and solo the bass? It just sound good. Uh, so. that, that's interesting because I know that I know some people definitely feel like if you can't hear it in the mix, it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, Crap. And I've heard some, but like some good producers feel that way. But then also, I I completely agree with you that you should take every detail and make it as good as you possibly can why yeah. not yeah well, exactly what I was about to say yeah why not do it you're, you're, you're there I mean why not just do it good um, so um, and of course I mean it, it depends on the style I mean I'm not saying like you should it should sound awesome if it's a grindcore band like everything but you know it should at least be you know organized and you know, no bullshit there or nasty, you know, punch-ins or, you know, stuff like that. Just clean it up and make that sound good. And I'm not talking about editing either, like quantizing and stuff like that, which I've done in the past, but not doing that much anymore, like nowadays. But You're just talking about having, like, professional sessions that actually work, that aren't slopped together like bullshit like taking it seriously even if the the genre itself is like grind which is very you know it, it's it, it's explosive and uh shouldn't be messed with too much you still don't want to have a garbage session no that's that's correct that's correct 
And then, you know, they should be, I mean, like I said, it should be good. I mean, you shouldn't have, you know, pungence in there. Man, fix the crossfades if, if there is any and <laughs> stuff like so, that. Let's talk a little bit about your production style, because um, you've done something really, really unique, which is that even through the age of digital editing and being able to replace everything, you've managed to keep your productions very, very organic sounding and like real and raw, but at the same time, modern and huge and polished which is like two opposite things but you managed to get them both in your productions um can you talk about that at, at all absolutely first thanks man for that uh i mean it's um i guess it's based on i i really like natural drum sounds i mean like Andy Wallace's drum sounds and uh, you know that's oh they're great yeah I, I just love it and that's that that was the actual mission for me in the beginning I thought all my sessions sounded like shit you know and I also wanted to make it I also wanted to make it sound as good and and so I guess this is um, um, the result of all these hours spent uh, trying to find that good cool combination between when it went over to to i mean uh, pro tools when it went over to pro tools for example and i i mean i started using pro tools like 10 years ago or something so i'm really i'm pretty fresh <laughs> but finding that combination to maintain the acoustic vibe even though and also get that snappy <clears throat> in your face drum sound and yeah, that was challenging in the beginning, but now I think I, I think I know what to do <laughs> and how to achieve <laughs> that. Uh, but it's just it, it's all based on having the right mic placements and and all these trial and errors. You know, uh, it's 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 a result of that. Every time I record something, I I have a like an extra mic somewhere. I, I always do something new to see if I can improve myself or find like new solutions to to things and and spend a lot of time with room mics in general because that's where the acoustic vibe is to me. So as long as you got that, as long as you have that, like good ambient mics, then you can mix in triggered, you know, channels if you want to and you know uh I don't find it that tricky anymore. There, there's nothing like a, a great drummer in a great room. Oh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, you need that drummer, though. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes people don't realize how important that part is. Um, that it's all for shit if, uh, <laughs> if the musician isn't great. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I like guitars, guitar, guitar player, man. Yeah, but drummers. I mean, you can't really. I mean, if 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 there, if it is someone that that you know plays really sloppy, then then you're doomed. <laughs> then you uh, <laughs> then you need to figure out. Then you need to have a lot of cards in your sleeve to like. Okay, this is that type of drummer. Okay, then I know I can do that and that and that. So there are, and so actually sometimes that's fun. You know, sometimes it is fun to re to record a person which is not that good because then uh, 
uh, yeah, the challenge is fun to to make it sound good. You know, you know that that's actually really fascinating that you say that because I know lots of people who would get really really frustrated by a bad musician, but it's interesting. So your challenge is to keep your aesthetic, um, your production aesthetic. But getting that out of, like, say, a sloppy drummer. So still making it sound raw, still making it snap, but uh, somehow figuring out how to do that with a bad drummer, which is, you know, normally the solution for a bad drummer is just to replace the whole thing, mm. <laughs> make it sound like a drum machine. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Uh, and I don't make any, I don't, I don't pay more attention to, to better. You know, musicians then, you know, not as good musicians. It's the same thing. I mean, if we're working together, it's uh, it's going to be good. And, uh, you know, otherwise we shouldn't work together. You know, I spend as much time on those bands, like not known bands. Uh, it's as important to me as it is for them. And that's, I, I've, I've never really like done a record that uh, they're not good. I was just going to do it anyway, blah, 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 blah. I always I um, I always spend a lot of time and 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 make it as good as I can. Um it's worth it in the end, you know. Maybe that's how you uh, keep getting well, you know, jobs. <laughs> yeah, never allow your standards to drop. It doesn't I I feel like it doesn't matter who the who the band is if you drop your own standards then that's uh, basically, you're setting the stage for doing a bad job. Mm. Like, if you even say it's okay once, then it becomes okay twice. Exactly. And how, how fun is it to work also when just, you know, ah, oh, well, it, it sucks, but what the fuck? I mean, it's just, I mean, I'll, I'll focus on the next one instead. It's not fun, you know? No. No, it's actually torture. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it actually kind of sucks when you do that. So one way there was a time period when I was recording, and I was actually starting to get frustrated by some of the bands because they couldn't play for shit. Mm. And I one day I was like, I don't want to hate this. Like I don't want to be mad all the time. So how can I, how can I reframe this in my mind so that I'm positive about it because this is not good. Because I was seriously getting pissed. Hmm. Um, because it was band after band after band after band just fucking sucked. And uh, and they were like on labels and touring and it was just like messing with my head. It was like, how are these bands even getting a shot? Like, this is not what I signed up for. Hmm. And then one day I was just like, you know what? Just take it as an opportunity to learn. The challenge is to make these guys sound great. And it. the worse they are, the more of a challenge it is, and the better you're going to get if uh, if you make them sound great. Exactly. It's a perfect opportunity to, to try out new mics and new mic placements in general. And because, I mean, I mean, they have problems playing anyway, and then you need to find that good solution for that drummer or for that guitarist and uh, you learn so much every for every session you learn something new 
So, I mean, like, you, you're so spot on. It's better to not seeing the negative thing in it and, like, just only focusing in on how bad they are and focus on, okay, what else can I do? What what can I do new now? What can I, how can I improve? How can, how can I make this Nedron sound good? I mean, do I have, maybe I should mix that sample with that sample. Maybe I should, you know, <clears throat> yeah, tr- try to see the, f- you know, fun in it and learn something out of it instead Absolutely. I, I don't think that that's a natural. I don't think that that's like a natural thing for people or for most people for to just like be presented with crap and find the goodness in it. <laughs> yeah. Or but, like, yeah, of course, there's a limit, you know, until you explode. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah. At least try to do the best out of it. And I don't know. Drink more. Well, coffee. It, it takes drink more coffee. I, I think know. it will. Like, that really did work for me, though. Like, when I was successful in changing the way I thought about it, the sessions went way better. Hmm. Like, got it to sound way better, and the relationship with the bands was way better, and I slept way better at night. Um, Everything was just better. And it did take a little bit of work mentally to, like... Sometimes it was a matter of, like, thinking about it actively. Like, okay... This guy sucks. Have to not worry about him sucking. Have to just think about how to make it great. Not worrying about them sucking. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah but you've been doing this for quite some time too. What you say, '94? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the thing is that, like, uh, it's I've never been like obsessed with it the way you were. I was more into writing music but i got introduced to recording very very young and so i always used it as a way to record my own stuff Uh and it just kind of developed from there like it just so like maybe 2001 i started recording other people's bands because i guess some people heard my own demos back then and we're like you should record my band and you know one thing led to another and eventually was recording a couple signed bands but then in like 2004 2005 but then my band got signed Mm. and so i kind of didn't record for about five years i mean i did but not all the time so it's been kind of like a off and on thing but yeah i've been doing it for a while definitely for a while like i was definitely introduced to it on tape Oh, yeah. Um but you started with I this like Fostex E16 kind of thing or, or well, were you yeah. yeah. Well well the thing the studio that I went to had a half inch. Okay. Um yeah. and so we recorded on that. Uh, but then yeah, I had my own Fostex cassette <laughs> oh, yeah. start yeah. the, the cassette recorders and then moved on to a sound blaster <laughs> and then uh the <laughs> Yeah, and I, then, I've done uh, those sessions too, you know, being at home. And then you record a guitar at the same time as you're copying over to the next cassette deck. And then you... Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, so you can imagine the, the, the you know, the, the feeling that I had when we went to that studio. Like, oh, a real studio. It's, man, I don't think that kids these days understand what it was like in the Fostex four track days. No, no, probably not. And then, I mean, even even speaking about ADOTs, how limited you are and also actually how cool it is, you know. You got this amount of channels and that's it. And you listen to music and you're not watching music. 
and you know you need to make up your mind whether you should should we really dare to record this before that part in case of I miss if I miss the you know if I miss stopping the tape machines I mean then it will you know all that stress and all that it, it you're afraid of you know tracking over something you got one chance that's it that's I always used to love that stuff. Yeah, same here. And then mixing too, you know, you're, you're three persons, <clears throat> you know, doing things on the console at the same time as you're bouncing it over to DAT or something. And then, yeah, if you screw it up, like, ah, damn, okay, okay, let's do it again. And, uh, you know, that mission and, and, and that challenge is so fun too. You can, you can feel the excitement and feel the tension in the room while bouncing it down to DAT. That all that's gone. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just reminded me of something. So I remember when I went to that studio once. Mm. It was very, very early. I walked in, and the guy was doing a mix to 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 ADAT. Um, you know, from from the half inch through the console to ADAT, and uh, he was halfway through the song, and I just kind of he didn't notice that I walked in the room. Yeah, for people who are who are like under the age of thirty, uh, you should realize that back then you had to perform mixes. Like it was kind of like playing, like you played the board, like you played an instrument almost. So I walked up and he didn't notice, and uh, so I got closer to him and said hi. And like he looked at me, and then like like the fucking lasers in his eyes looked like he wanted to fucking kill me. And then uh, he went back to mixing. And then the minute the song was stopped, don't you ever fucking come near me when I'm performing a mix? What the fuck do you think you're doing? Uh, oh man, yeah. Yeah, I learned. I learned from that one. But, you learned from you know, that. Yeah. I, yeah, I never did it again. But I mean that that whole uh, you know you've got one time to get it right and all that. I feel like even though obviously you know you're using Pro Tools now and are in 2017, it does seem like some of that has in like stuck with uh, at least it sounds like um, like you get that out of the musicians that you produce. Mm. Like really, really good performances and um, really. Yeah, but that's uh, the key thing, you know. Good performances, of course, and uh, once again, being really thorough with everything. Uh, really, really pay attention to how you mic things up, and um, yeah, make sure that it sounds good. Double check all channels. Do I have like, uh, you know oxide or whatever and i mean check everything and of course things slip through i mean even today but but you know be be careful that's the key thing there there are no perfect sessions i know there's always (laughs) always something but uh it's funny to me like when i um uh, on nail the mix because you know you know we're getting the actual tracks from whoever did them and uh the actual session is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something in there. And sometimes some of our students who have never worked on professional records will point out those mistakes. Like there's like they're like, we did something wrong. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like 
no record is ever perfect. There is always going to be mistakes in there. Some, like you're dealing with humans. Yeah, yeah, but of course. Yeah, there's always something in there. Before before you got the files from me now for Destroy, Race, Improve, there was some things that I needed to clean out. But that was, I mean, some vocal takes that we muted live when we mixed it into the, when we did the live mix. So I needed to cut that away. But but apart from that, everything is as it was. But there there are things, you know. And I look back to it. It was a long time ago, and you know some things are not really in tune, and it's uh, it's it's a little bit sloppy. I mean, I know it's Meshuggah, so it's it's stupid to say sloppy, but but a bit <laughs> sloppy for for being them, you know. But you know, who cares? It was a long time ago. And the only one that cares actually is, is it's it's the band. So, but you know, there there's always things. Uh, that really was a long time ago. I don't think that. I mean, sloppy doesn't really come to mind for me. <laughs> but it's funny to hear you say that. Uh, I, I don't think that anybody else would actually think of that. Probably besides, like you said, besides the band. Um, I have some questions here from the audience. I would like to ask you shoot hang on one second i pulled up the wrong thing all right worse but was there you talked about that people were like pinpointing mistakes uh like sometimes for your nail and mixes Did, was there anything that popped up for the story race improve not that i can remember um i actually with the, with the with the files you gave everyone was just kind of blown away that you could go mixes up I mean, faders up, and it pretty much sounded finished. Yeah, that's what I realized um, too. Yeah, I was bringing it up to, yeah, that, to zero, and then it sounded more or less like the album. A few things. To Honestly, I think that that kind of was the thing that people focused on the most. Like that, uh, they realized just how good the the band is and the production was to like be able to get it that close mm. um but you know sometimes they'll point out like if there's like a bad edit or like there's a blank file or oh, you yeah. know yeah. Yeah. Or, or like you hear you hear kick drums in the overheads but they're not in the kick drum track oh what about that by the um, way oh, oh i hate that <laughs> When, when people yeah. need to learn like if you're editing kicks edit the whole drum kit yes <laughs> please do that uh, yeah it's I mean that, that but that just goes to show that like a lot of stuff gets by hmm. on records and that I think that if you're a student learning you should kind of like what we were talking about earlier um, the worst of a musician is the more of an opportunity you have to mm. really focus on your engineering skills. Kind of like when you're when you get files to mix. If there's problems like that, then you have the opportunity to learn how to solve them. Mm. Oh yeah, um, yeah. All these um, kind of <clears throat> ambience ambience tricks that I uh, that I play with today or use today is actually coming from scenarios like that like the kicks are edited but not you know together with the overhead and and, and the room mics and then i need to you know figure that out somehow and uh yeah you need to create create a new environment for the drums um and that, that takes up a lot of time and i spent 
probably months and months and months, you know, figuring figuring out the best possible way. Uh, yeah, because I mean, let's face it, uh, lots of especially especially now, um, like the further we get and the more that recordings are kind of done, like at home or by like less experienced guys, like especially drums are oftentimes delivered to mixers not sounding very good. Yeah, you're right, you're um, right. And what's also sick is that your mix is, you spend like three quarters of the mix just mixing the drums. At least I am. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but the most part of the mix is like dealing with the drums. And then like, okay, time for guitar. Uh, maybe that, uh, done. Okay, vocals, uh, done. Now I'm printing the mix. So it's, imagine if there, I mean, recordings were better, drums. I mean, how much more time could you spend on guitars and like, you know, f- small, funny, like details instead of, you know, trying to rescue, you know, bad editing. And that's a bit of a shame. It, it, it is, but uh, I mean, some of those ambience tricks that you were showing on Nail the Mix were really, really cool. So, um, so how uh, that brings up the question that how often are you mixing stuff that you didn't produce? I don't know, fifty fifty maybe. Fifty uh, fifty. Yeah. Okay, so a good amount of the time. Yeah, yeah, good amount. That's that's correct. So I may, maybe I mean now like lately it's been, and I don't know, kind of a lot. Maybe like eight eight out of ten bands maybe. So but it goes wow. in, like it goes in circles like in periods. Uh, so you really do have to do a lot of drum rescuing. Uh, yes, sir. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I totally, we totally went off on a tangent. I actually have these questions in front of me now, finally. Um, so let me start with Clifton Miles. And this is, uh, what's your best advice when it comes to finding balance in your mixes? Also, do you look for certain gauges or meters to determine that your low end is thick enough or is that not something you think about Hmm, this may come like a shock to some people but i've never really got used to look to meters and you know watching frequencies i had uh i had a good what is it called like uh spectrum analyzer tune tone uh never mind but i had one in the (laughs) beginning but uh from I mean, nowadays, no, I, I go, I just listen. If it sounds good, it sounds good. And you get used to your own monitors after a while. And can I can almost, I can feel like if it's the right amount of bass in the vibrations on my console. Um, and I, I got, I got teased uh, many years for, for doing that by feeling the cone of the speaker in my second studio like ah look okay, it's touching the speaker again and they were taking photos and sending to other friends and like hey, hey. you know so um, I think I got I got to know how it feels uh, the frequencies and that that's my spectrum analyzer um what was the first part of the question? And the and that's a great answer, by the way. Um, the first part of the question was, what's your best advice when it comes to finding balance in the mixes? That's also part of the, you know, picky, thorough thing. You know, if 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 your kick sounds good and the shadow is clean and good, and you know, then 
awesome. And then over to the snare, same thing. And then it's so easy to find the right balance if you know that all channels sounds good and you're not covering anything up with this amount of channels. Make sure it sounds good, every individual channel. And that will help you out finding the right balance. That's how simple it is. Uh, I, I think the question was up before about, I mean, how do you place it? How do you put in like a distorted bass together with a really low tuned seven or eight string guitar? And that's the same thing, you know, finding the right harmonics in the distortion and find the room for the bass. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's just, you know, once again, be thorough, you know, with every channel. It- it's not rocket science, but you definitely do need to put the work in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm not saying that, but, you know, it, it's not any, like, uh, magical trick. It's, uh, no, you know. it's not. No, you just, it, it, it really is interesting to me, speaking of how it's not a magical trick, that um, the guys we have on Nail the Mix, um, which are all great mixers, they're they tend to have very simple chains for the most part hmm. yeah. um and they uh, f- for the mo- like i mean like nine out of ten um have just like very very simple chains and would just all say the same thing it's not rocket science just uh you need to actually take the time to learn how this stuff feels and sounds to you and then it's just a matter of making the right moves instead of a bunch of moves absolutely and and it's not about like having the best piece of equipment almost that it's actually better to not have good things in the beginning because then you need to learn more then you need to practice more mm-hmm. and you know then you, you need to get skilled by the things that you got and that's how it started for me. I had like nothing. Uh, and it went even worse over to the next studio because uh, the lightning strokes the studio and like destroyed everything. So I didn't have oh, anything. You've, you know. you've, you've lived through a lightning strike? So have I. <laughs> oh, you have? Okay. What about water At leaks? I had like three, three water leaks too. I had one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Man, is it a lightning? Were you there for the lightning strike? No, I was not. I just that was the last oh. last session in that studio. Um, I had water leak, uh, a water leak, like a few days before. So and it was like in a dugout actually. So but and then uh, so it was probably a lot of water like inside the wall or something, and uh, I don't know whatever. And then uh, we were done, and then I left for Stockholm to do something and the band was still there and they were filming like Bye Bye Studio and all that and then he was just about to call me on the landline like phone and and say like hey we're leaving we're leaving the studio now thanks thanks for this time and then the and then it happened and he saw like blue light kicking out from every socket and it could easily have killed him for sure if he would have had uh, called me <laughs> while that happened um yeah, that was scary. But, and then I mean, I didn't. Okay, okay, cool. No, everyone survived. Uh, that's awesome. Just leave the studio, and then I'll deal with it later. So, and then I just packed everything down. I didn't double check it until we open up the next studio, and then I realized that everything was broken. So, bad. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's traumatic. I was there like when it happened, and it was like like you said, like the 
the blue light, and everything that was plugged in was just gone. It was terrible. Uh, (laughs) Such a bad, yeah, such a bad experience. Maybe also, Uh, we walked into like, uh, to the test studio too, we walked into the the live room. You just came directly into the live room when you opened up the door and then I stepped in water like, I don't know, many <laughs> centimeters of waters, of water, and and then uh, that could have killed me too because like some of the sockets were floating in the control room in the water, you know. Holy shit! Yeah. Uh, so, whew, scary yeah. scenario. Talk about luck. I mean, yeah, that that is actually pretty scary. That's why I tell people when there's a bad storm, just unplug your studio. Don't fuck with it. Uh, I guess you're used to it, living in the States and all of these tornadoes and bullshit. Oh, well, yeah. And I had a studio in Florida for like four years, which Orlando is the lightning capital of the United States. Hmm. So, like, it was very, very normal to see lightning striking the ground. So, always at about 3 p.m. every single day between May and October in storm season, you can just unplug the studio for about an hour and a half and the storms come through and they're fucking violent and then they're over but uh you you do need to if you don't unplug you're really tempting fate yeah Yeah, in my opinion okay so here's another question from morden field which is Daniel's mixes often have elements of like boomy rooms and loose drums, yet it sounds great. I would love to hear how he finds room for all of that stuff without having it just eat everything up and make it messy. Like, how can you shed some light on how you make it all work? I had that discussion quite recently too. Um, I don't believe in the uh, in the thing that. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of room here uh, that won't fit to uh, to that type of style, and that won't fit. But yeah, it will fit to that style. But uh, it's just a matter of <clears throat> yeah, balance again, and then um, and then making sure that it's not the lowest frequencies, uh, and and that like the bass is not that long in the room. Uh, bad English, but that you don't no, have uh, like sense. yeah too much yeah. too much low end in in the room mics, uh, or you could have a lot of low end, but make sure that it's the you know correct low end and does it that it doesn't interfere with the low end in the bass, for example, so they're on the same <clears throat> same frequencies. Uh, so you carve the shit out of your rooms uh, to make them work. Yeah, yeah, I, I carve a lot around. First of all, like. Three four hundred hertz, a lot, uh, and and then I uh, kick in some of like the very lowest, like forty something to that, a, a little bit, and then um, uh, what else is common? Uh, like this three four k kind of frequencies, and take that out a bit, and then compress the shit out of it, uh, and then find the right place for it, uh, volume wise. So it, it's it's. I don't like when it's too much treble in the ambience mics, uh, and I don't like that cardboard 300 hertz, 400 hertz frequency. So by 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 doing that, I think it's quite easy to to find it in in place. And you know, it also this question links to 
the previous question too like if if all channels are good you know it, it it's it's not that hard to to find a good balance and i do love ambience mics i think that's once again the where the where the natural feeling is and it should be present you know it could be in there even if it's like the fastest band ever even for i mean even when doing like behemoth and bands like that there's a lot of room a lot of room i think that's part of what helps them sound so awesome honestly yeah exactly and even though if it's not that like super present frequencies in the room or in the ambience it's it still helps to create another dimension you know like it's pretty much the same thing as adding <clears throat> like uh, what do you call it like soil frequencies uh, it could be just I don't know speed up a cartoon flick or something and then put it into distortion and then you cool frequencies put it in the mix and then it feels like you have something yeah you have another dimension you know uh, man I, I haven't done that in a while but that's such a cool trick yeah I mean that I, I learned that after the City album uh, with um, this is Strapping Young Lad um, it's it's everywhere and then after that record I started to do that too so I I, I have samples everywhere I had that for many years now I, I sort of kind of forgot to do that but uh, but it really helps out your uh, your song just add one more one more dimension and it's really really sweet if you think that oh, this riff I love the riff but it doesn't sound as powerful as the riff before or uh, and it doesn't really work with like kick up the volume then uh, try to experiment with that add some sort of in the background and then you know but very very low um, that that quite often works it, it really does it's yeah. weird how, how well it works um, okay here's another one from Pierre-Luc Lampron which is Daniel's Music productions are amazing on many aspects, one being his great mastery of low end, which is a difficult range in medical production. Can he give in medical in metal production, <laughs> not medical production? Uh, can he give us advices on how he achieves such a great low end extension in the kick, for instance, on the Coloss album? Also, how much of that low end extension comes from the mix and how much in the mastering stage? Mm hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's that much in the mastering stage. Um, they probably cut out a little bit in the mastering stage, um, just to yeah smoothen out the very lowest and you know con con control control the low end a bit. But the, so the rest is in the mix. And as far as that kick goes, um, uh, it was more or less the same thing you know being a little bit careful with the three four hundred hertz thing in the kick uh, a lot of low end and a lot the room so the whole coloss album is like built on the room more or less um, i was about to say that that really does sound like a room heavy album yeah yeah the whole the whole uh, yeah every channel like well especially yeah even the toms you're right but uh, the snare I helped out with some IRs that I've done in another studio a few years earlier than 
than that one. Uh, so I added in that IR and I blended it in with my room and they were sort of pals, so they worked great. Um, and yeah, the kick, uh, kick, uh, it was blended in with some sort of sample too, but mainly it's, it's the real thing, you know, um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fatso and a lot of EQing. Nice. Um, and yeah, it's hard to say exactly <clears throat> how to uh, manage to, you know, to get that sound <laughs> like this, but, um, yeah. Focus on the room. Yeah, I think that you kind of answered it throughout the entire podcast. Honestly, uh, this this question, we, I feel like we've been talking about it for a while, and um, and also he should watch Nail the Mix. Yeah, that we did last week because yeah, yeah, you kind of covered this exactly. Yeah, we did we did a bit of that. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. This is from Eric Burt, and. Uh, here goes. Daniel, you are responsible for so many of my favorite metal records that I lost count. Can you talk about how you decide whether to place the kick above the bass or the bass above the kick in terms of frequency? It seems most mixers these days are doing kick below the bass, but on stabbing the drama, it sounds like you went kick above the bass. Mm-hmm. I was curious about that. Mm. Uh, stabbing the drama is it's it's both actually it's a bit below and a lot above <laughs> so uh, <laughs> but it, it's that that frequency again the when you actually when you listen to the kick soloed sounds quite stupid it's uh, it's just low end m- massive amount of low end and a lot of this typewriter th- frequency you know, and so it doesn't sound that good, but together with the room mic, that's where it all happens. Um, and I do, I do it both ways, both above and both below. Uh, so uh, I don't have a, a favorite option. It depends on the style too. So if it's more like rock or something, I don't go that low frequency wise on the kick mm-hmm. and um, I mean lately it's been a lot I mean lately maybe it's been above uh, the, uh, the bass I guess I mean it just sounds like it depends on what you're working on yeah 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 absolutely I think uh, people should not overthink it and uh, really try to more learn learn their speakers and learn their room uh, and learn what they personally like yeah, um, you're from right. their favorite records, like figure out what's going on in your favorite records and why it works, mm-hmm. and then when you're working on stuff, try to apply that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's that's uh, really good advice. That's actually how it started for me too. I was trying, I was trying to copy my favorite records, um, and um, you know, eventually you find the tricks that you can use to establish your own sound, and, and yeah. That's how simple it is. Overthinking is definitely a, a problem, you know. Uh, tweak it till it sounds good, and don't don't care that much if it's, you know, if you're doing stupid things. If it looks bad, I mean, who cares? Well, someone had a question that I wasn't going to ask, but now I'm going to ask it because mm. it fits what we're saying. Um, do you use? Do you ever reference other mixes? 
Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, that's once again how it started. Uh, that was the only thing I did. I was only referencing things. Uh, um, and, you know, that's how I learned. And nowadays, not as much. But if it's... Uh, sometimes it's good to ask the band when 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 I'm mixing, just like, what's your favorite record? Not to copy the record, but to know what kind of um, sound do they prefer. So I'm not like putting, leaning it to a direction which they will eventually hate so and also spend some time so at that time yeah I'll, I'll you know referencing but but it's more like frequency wise uh, to see that I'm like at the same ballpark it, so, it makes sense and you know after a while you get to know your own monitors and and you feel comfy with that but I think I yeah. think you should I think it's good to reference I mean just to at the very least to know that you're up to standard you know up to like the a, a professional standard but then also I used referencing a lot when I was figuring out balance yeah um, right yeah. like I would reference lots of records just to just for the kind of the stuff that people were asking earlier it was just like how much kick versus bass am I really hearing? Mm. Like, um, how much do I really want in there? Like, how loud are the cymbals really on my favorite records? Yeah, you got um, it. That's a, that's a good thing to check out. And yeah, like you said, once you have the recipe, you can sort of trust yourself, your own yes. judgment. I mean, as time goes by. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast oh, um it's been great having you and i really hope that we can do this again yeah we should i mean visit thanks you in sweden for, again yeah <laughs> i mean thanks for having me on yeah this was a pleasure it was a pleasure thank you sir the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by the 2017 urm summit a once in a lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests including andrew wade kane Churko, billy decker fluff Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.